episode 376, Dune. Welcome to the Strangers and Aliens podcast. Strangers. <laughs> to boldly say what needs to be said. Would you be a stranger or an alien? Or would you be a strange alien? The truth is out there. I am your father's best friend's plumber. Captain Kirk. Do you think that there's room in sci-fi for God? The very first thing that God did so wise you are. was that he created something, so we have a creative God. This is Strangers and Aliens Podcast. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year... 10,191. The known universe is ruled by the Padisha Emperor Shaddam IV, my father. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. The Spacing Guild and its navigators, who the spice has mutated over 4,000 years, use the orange spice gas, which gives them the ability to fold space, that is, travel to any part of the universe without moving. Oh yes, I forgot to tell you. The spice exists only on one planet in the entire universe, a desolate dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Freemen, who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. Tatooine. Oh, oh no, that's right, Dune, yep. Which all that stuff right there you did not hear in the, the latest uh, Dune movie. That is from the 1984 Dune to set up the movie without doing a Star Wars scroll. Um, <laughs> because there's a lot of mythology packed into this thing we call Dune. So, yeah, this is the podcast, though. This is Strangers and Aliens. I'm Ben. Ben Avery. I'm here with Steve. Steve Avery, no, what a Puma? Steve McDonald. Steve McDonald, yes, that's that's who you are. After all these years, you finally figured it out. That's <laughs> I've come out from under your shadow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so we're going to talk about Dune. We're going to mostly talk about the the most recent movie, but I do want to talk about the 1984 movie for sure, and the book a little bit, and our uh, our own experiences with Dune, but. Um, the third stranger and alien who is our our, our friend and, and cohort uh, is not here because he is dealing with, it sounds like, uh, dealing with not only a sick child, but a sick self. Yeah. Uh, so the child was sick last night and he let us know he wouldn't be recording today. He planned to send in some feedback kind of uh, information, but then sent us a message this morning saying... He also is sick. It sounds like the two of them are just going to be miserable together. So, <laughs> And I hope he didn't catch the flu from my son, who is home from college <laughs> yeah. for Thanksgiving and met with some friends, caught the flu. So I'm in Indiana, Massachusetts. It, it's really 
well, pretty if he, close. He could have caught it over over our text, and and maybe he maybe they caught the computer virus. That's why they call it a virus. That's why they call it a virus, and that is yeah. really stupid. I should probably cut that out. <laughs> like you're going to cut anything out. This is all gold. <laughs> yeah, gold. That's that's what it is. Oh my the goodness. gold must flow. Yeah. Hey, so Steve, let's just start at the beginning. Uh, what is your interaction and experience with Frank Herbert and Dune? I actually read some short stories by Frank Herbert, and um, and in reading them, I started to realize what a good punchy short story should be. So I, I have a, a little bit of respect for um, for Frank Herbert, but not uh, not initially for for the Dune stuff, not for his long form stuff, but for his shorter stuff. Where, um, where did you read the shorter stuff? It was in a uh, a compilation. It was like a little anthology of uh, short, uh, you know, uh, not even novella length, just short stories by by Frank Herbert. I can't remember any of them. Because hmm. I read them probably back in the of the eighties, probably, um, and I've lost the book, so okay. I don't know. Um, I didn't know there would be a quiz. Well, I guess I should have. You should have expected it. I mean, how long have we been doing this? <laughs> I didn't you know? know this would be on the quiz. Okay, I just didn't know it would be on the quiz. It's really it's less a quiz and more a hard hitting interview, Steve. <laughs> really, where the did you read this? I don't. Clear. I don't know if I can trust that you did read this. You say you read this, but I, I'm not hearing that you uh, can back that up with with facts. So, no. so I'm making up that there was any anyone named Frank Herbert. Um, and then, the, interestingly, uh, of course, when I was growing up, I was the Star Wars kid. I mean, Star Wars started when I was ten. And, you know, lasted through till I was 16. So it was like Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars all the time. So when I'm 17, 1984, um, here comes Dune. And it's like, okay, this could be the next Star Wars. Who knows? They were definitely setting it up for that. Yeah. So I I took my girlfriend at the time who – does it anyway anyway not your girlfriend anymore is what you're saying no not not anymore no yeah but uh she was for a while and then uh we went to see the movie and and it was it bored me to the point where i could tell that she was pretty bored with it too and it was just it was just sort of like a i think we commiserated on our boredom um but you know as I grew older and the sci-fi channel became a thing and then they started playing Dune and um, there was actually a Christian industrial metal band who would take uh, like their first album. They took a lot of sound clips from um, Star Trek five. So you have, you know, uh, uh, what do you know of my pain? You know, your pain runs deep and stuff like that. And they had a lot of uh, stuff from that. And they would they would sort of focus on one movie for each of their albums that they would take a lot of stuff from. And then their second album came out. The band was called Mortal. And uh, and they had a lot of clips from Dune, you know, and it was it was like it was making the movie real again to me. Um and so I dug back into the movie and, and I was interested in it a little bit more. And uh, I, I, I'm, I was pretty excited when the, the extended version came out. 
and you had this whole like I don't even know how much it was like fifteen or twenty minutes of like storyboards, painted storyboards mm-hmm. of the at the very beginning. Yeah, the yeah. back history of all that stuff, and and it sort of made me understand a little bit more of what was going on in the movie. But it was never like a full, complete understanding of it until I went back in preparation for this episode and dug into some uh, some things that really discussed what was really going on in the you know the ten thousand years of history that this book is based on, and um, and it's sort of like you know it's it's. It makes it seem so penultimate. Do you know what I mean? No. <laughs> well, it would be like if someone said, you know, I want to tell you the beginning of America. You know, the, how how the, 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 the Revolutionary War began and things like this. And, and you know, I want to start by, by telling you about a great man and... And and his his father's name, and you're like, wait a minute, why are you telling me about his father's name? Why don't you tell me about the man? It's like, well, you know, uh, I'm going to. So his father's name, and you know, you start to launch into like his father's story, and you're like, can you can you tell me the story about the the great man who's who started the you know who's the founder of our country? And and yes, I'm going to tell you that. So his father, and you're like. <laughs> You know, so um, I'm like, I mean, Paul Atreides, as important as he is to this narrative and the overall arching scheme of the of of the story, he's sort of like like the father of the important character. You know, so it's sort of like I I don't want to ruin too much if someone hasn't read all the stories or whatever, because the movie is well done. And the movies are, I mean, even the older one, it's not perfect, but, you know, there's a lot of enjoyment out of there. Um, But it just sort of seems like, it it sort of seems like Frank Herbert did this long form story. And then whoever was doing Star Wars, all those, the, the later movies, they accidentally did the same thing where George Lucas's movies were all like setting up the Skywalker you know, and Luke and Leia and, and, you know, the redemption of Darth Vader. And then the last three movies came on just, just like flam, flam, flam. And it's like, oh yeah. And, uh, all that stuff is, uh, it doesn't really matter because all this other new cool stuff that we just invented is better. And so just pay attention to that stuff. And all that other stuff is just filler. And you just sort of like what it was. I mean, that was like half my life, you know? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I would agree with that, but cause I, I, that's not the way it was intended for sure. I mean, Frank Herbert wrote the book Dune first. It was, uh, in serialized form in, right. uh, was it analog? I think. I think. So. Um, yeah. Cause he jumped ship with later Dune stuff to a, a different magazine, but, um, he scandal. Yeah. <laughs> slight scandal. John Campbell was not happy about that. The um, Campbell scandal. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Uh, but he wrote it. I mean, he was writing the story of the planet Dune and the story of Paul Atreides. Like that was what his first intention was. And then mm-hmm. it's like, okay, here's a sequel. Then we'll have the sequel and we'll continue the story of, of, of Paul. And then we'll have the, the next sequel. And it's, and honestly, the first three books are, I think 
a great trilogy and it's it's the Paul Atreides trilogy you know mm-hmm. you've and then the the interesting thing about dune but i also noticed about other sci-fi things like foundation is just it's the the time period that the the first six books of dune cover is thousands of years yeah and but you have sci-fi reasons in both dune and foundation you have these sci-fi reasons of why we're able to continue and kind of have some anchor characters that we're we're able to stick with and and uh and it, and it, it works it works but um when so my, my history with Dune is that I read the book in college. I read the the first six books, which were the only ones that they had at that point. Um, and I might not have even gotten through the sixth one because I just remember the last three, You start. I started it and it's just kind of a slog and I just <laughs> didn't like it as much. And so I have very few memories of the, the second half of Frank Herbert's original books. And, I have a vague memory, but I can't remember if it's because I read the sixth book or it's because I read something about the sixth book. And so I gave up because the sixth book doesn't really end in a satisfying way. But I don't even remember why or how it's not satisfying. All I know is he intended the seventh and didn't get around to it before he passed away. Uh. He left notes. And and so I'm reading these books in in college. The first book is just fascinating. The second book is really, really good. Third book I enjoyed. And then after that, somewhere in those final three books, I dropped off and stopped reading. Um, And then uh, read the first book more than once. I think I read it just two times in that, that time period. Uh, And then saw the movie after I had read the book. So the movie had been out for not quite 10 years, but almost 10 years when I finally saw the movie. I had seen scenes wow. from it, and I would seen stills from it in Starlog and that kind of thing. Right. I, I'd seen the comic book that Marvel did. I didn't read it, but I'd seen it. So I, I knew about it and finally sat down to watch it late night, college dorm, uh, sitting down with the Papa John's pizza, corn chips, uh, <laughs> the... The uh, Kroger grocery store version of of Mountain Dew, and you know <laughs> we're sitting leader. down for a late night to watch Dune. And honestly, the reason we were sitting down to watch it was because I had read the book and I was interested in seeing it. But my friend was watching through the David Lynch movies and wanted to watch uh, Dune. And so I'm like, "Oh, this is this is great. Your chocolate, my peanut butter. We'll put them together. It tastes great." <laughs> so we watched that movie and. Even then, now my friend had not read the book, and he was just lost, but also enthralled and captured by the the movie because it's it's visually there's there's some really stunning things going on. There's some really uh, weird uh, directing choices that are being made with costuming and and that kind of thing. You've got Sting in there, um, uh, but then you also have some state of the art, some state of the art. Uh, puppetry going on you have all sorts of the the 80s special effects is all kind of coming into place and and david lynch did this movie instead of return of the jedi so (laughs) you can take for that what you will but um someone dodged a bullet we don't know who if it was david lynch or if it was star wars fans but uh he did this instead of that and they were setting it up they were thinking this might be another big sci-fi franchise they had action figures 
I remember seeing the action figures and thinking those are cool. I don't know what, it, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> you know? And, yeah. <laughs> um, but all that was like seeing the action figures when I was a kid, you know, I didn't, I was aware of the movie, not interested really in the movie, but anyway, fast forward, the Dune miniseries comes out on sci-fi mm-hmm. and I didn't have cable, but as soon as it hit, I guess VHS, probably I, I rented it to watch it. And, and then the sequel, the children of Dune, I think that's what they called it. I didn't see that one. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was, that was okay. It actually was a better, I think, interpretation of the story of Dune and a better presentation of the story. Um, the first time I saw the 1984 Dune movie, I, even then I said to myself, if you've read the book, this is a great um, companion piece to the book. And it's, you read the book and now you're going to sit down with someone who is doing their fan art of the book, you know, <laughs> and this is what, this is that person. Now the person who's doing the fan art happens to be a very visual director and a very quirky director. So you're, you're getting something more than just, you know, um, deviant art of the, right. of the thing. But, um, but to sit down and watch the movie is to sit down and, and see highlights from the book. And I, I still, to this day, I'm not sure like what would someone watching this without any context from the book think, you know, cause it just feels like it's all over the place. And I knew the book when I watched it. All right. Um, and I've seen that movie three or four times since then. I, I, I know people put on lists of worst movies. Um, and I know our friend John uh, did a bottom shelf podcast episode about it, which I haven't gotten around to listening to yet. Uh, so I don't know what their opinions were of the, of the movie. Um, <laughs> but John, how are you friend of the podcast? Not friend of the podcast podcast family. Yeah. Um, he's family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's a regular, a regular, uh, not co-host, but guest host. You know, uh, regular. Well, that's, that's a personal thing. We don't want to talk about <laughs> Uh, but anyway, he, he has a new I podcast. Going, I was going Sherlock Holmes, you know, oh, okay. the, All right. the street irregulars. Well, that's not what the word put in my head, but <laughs> I guess not. yeah, yeah. Uh, he, the bottom shelf podcast is about watching bad movies and trying to decide do they belong top shelf, bottom shelf or mid shelf. And I might get the word verbiage wrong, but that's the, the basic idea. Um, Dune is, is one of their episodes. And so, yeah, check it out. They are talking about 1984 Dune in that podcast. Yeah. I'm sure they talk about other things, but uh, I have, like I said, I haven't listened to that one yet. So, anyway, um, I I think it's worth watching, especially if you've read the book. I think it's it's definitely worth your time. It's you're a long a thing. Fan. Yeah, yeah, and if you're a science yeah. fiction fan, it's 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 sci-fi homework, but I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's incredibly boring sci-fi homework. But it might be the kind of thing you'd take in uh, chunks. <laughs> well, I mean, if you've already done a lot of sci-fi watching and you've watched, you know, all the the, the quote-unquote classics from the 1950s and the, you know, powered through some of the 60s and the 70s pre-Star Wars stuff. And, you know, if, if you've done that, then you're ready for Dune if you haven't seen it. You know, it's it's just a continuation of, of that that feel, but it's it's more with the Star Wars glossy effects and everything, you know, so 
if if someone's just jumping in, if it's like, hey, this is going to be my first science fiction movie, uh-uh. no, <laughs> no, let's not do that. <laughs> no, um, you want to have something softer. This is a lot of uh, socio political, uh, you know, things going back. And this this is Star Wars Episode One, you know, where it's 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 a lot of people talking and uh, you know people having no confidence and the chancellor and things like that. And you're just sort of like, wait a minute, what's going on? I thought there was supposed to be lightsabers. Um, yeah. Well, so. uh, you, you bring that up. It's kind of funny because I, I said, you know, in that opening, the opening lines there that we did, the planet is Iraq. It's also known as Dune. And you said, uh, you know, also uh, Tatooine. Tatooine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, I, there's a lot of stuff that people look at and say, Oh, George stole that from, from this, that, and the other thing. Oh, and stole. Huh? <laughs> stole or appropriated or, you know, yeah, yeah. an homage. But here's, here's know, the thing. Star Wars did it and Star Wars did it bigger and, and more visual and mm-hmm. changed the landscape of, of cinematic sci-fi. Right. Well, in doing so it was building on the things that came before. Right. And so that's why, John Carter comes out and it's like, well, this is a ripoff of Star Wars. Well, no, mm-hmm. no, it is an influence on Star Wars. Yeah. And the same thing with Dune, where as people were looking at Dune and saying, well, this is a ripoff of Star Wars and it's a long, slow ripoff of Star Wars with the 1984 Dune. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, actually, this is interpreting an influence on Star yeah. Wars. And, you know, and, and that's where. There's a thing in in uh, marketing where they're like, you never want to be the first one to go there. You never want to be the first tablet on the market. You never want to be the first thing to be out there because people are going to take that build on it, make it better, and yep. and you're going to be forgotten. <clears throat> right. And and that's kind of what's happened with everything pre Star Wars because he kind of was the turning point where he built on it. I won't say necessarily he made it better, but in some ways he did. And in some ways he just made it um, flashier and, mm-hmm. and and better to look at, you know? And, and what Lucas did was he assimilated a whole bunch of his favorite things and told a different story with it. What's different, what, what the other side of that is would be, for instance, uh, Batman issue number one from, what is it, 1939, 1938, where they actually stole a story from the shadow pulp fiction and just put Batman's name in the place of the shadow and then just drew the pictures instead of telling it in text. See, that's a ripoff. <laughs> well, that's that's plagiarism. And, it, it is. You know, it, but it's still the whole, you know, great artists or, or bad artists steal. No, what is it? I can't remember the quote now, but basically the idea is artists build on each other. Yeah, you, know, you, you can't you can't too. help that George Lucas was synthesizing a lifetime of what he took in to create the Star Wars thing, similar to any other writer. You know, my my book that I just wrote, um, there's absolutely things in that book that are going to be recognizable as, as things from other places. Just hopefully with my spin on it, as you're looking at, it, say, oh, so there's spaceships. And there's this kind of faster than light travel and there's this and this and, but this is the way Ben would do it. Yep. You know? So yeah. At any rate, 
the book, I'm holding it in my hands right now. I have a hardcover edition that I had to buy so I could reread um, Dune because my other books are packed away and I cannot find them anywhere. (laughs) But this this edition, it was cheap, which was nice. It's uh, got thin and lightweight paper, which is also nice. But I also have Bibles that are smaller than this. Um, it's a hefty tome. It's a big book. And they said it was impossible to film. And when David Lynch did his version, they said they had been proven right. And then when they, (laughs) then when they did it for the sci-fi TV network, it was a huge ratings success. And it was a big, big deal because it was this giant in sci-fi, uh, canon, and uh, it was pretty half-hearted and green-screened. So was it perfect? No, it was not. But, but they did. They did a. I think they did a serviceable job with it. And I never want to watch it again. And I had to watch it in. And we're talking decades ago, maybe two decades, maybe a decade and a half. I don't know. But um, when I did watch it, I had to watch it in chunks. I I did fall asleep as I was watching it. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, and, and that's more, I think, you know, <laughs> maybe more so for me than you, but, but, you know, our age where, you know, it's like, sometimes I like to just turn something on that I'm familiar with and doze off to it. Yeah. But know? I would have, this was pre, <laughs> so I, when in, in that period of time in my life, we moved from an apartment to apartment every year because we were living on a college campus. My wife was a resident director. I was a technical director for the theater at the school and uh, did some other other odd jobs there. And um, so we moved. And so I remember the apartment we were living in when I watched it. And at least I think I do. And it was pre-kids. So I was young and fresh. You know, if it wasn't pre-kids, it was at least I had like one baby maybe or two, but I was, I was young. I was fresh. I was ready to take on the world and stay up late and watch a TV movie, (laughs) but I fell asleep. Wow. (laughs) And I don't plan to watch it again as fond as my memories of falling asleep during that movie are. So (laughs) I actually did turn it on and I'm trying to remember how far I actually did get into it but then I woke up and he's fighting with Fade at the end and I'm like wait a minute what (laughs) when did this happen (laughs) I don't even remember but you know it's just one of those one of those things so so it's a it's a big book and it's a book that's not for everyone um the best thing about when we talk about sci-fi homework where it's the things, if you're a sci-fi fan, you need to at least experience it. So you can say you've seen it and you can be a part of the conversation, blah, blah, blah. And it can influence your understanding of the genre and other movies. Right. And, and other things that came before that and other things that came after it, you know, like right. anything that came before it, a lot of that is is just in the consciousness. And so it's going to influence things mm-hmm. and anything that comes after it is going to be, you know, something that maybe gets influenced by it, you know, like foundation. We keep coming back to that, but that's a foundational part of sci-fi history. You have Mm -hmm. Dune, you have, you know, these, these big giant things in sci-fi. And then, then there's some smaller things that just kind of come and go and nobody notices. And you might pick up in a used bookstore because the cover looks cool. You might read it and get some enjoyment (laughs) out of it, but it's, and actually that's what I, 
I have a handful of books that I just bought from our library book sale and they were selling books by the pound. And, wow. and so I found, I found these, these old books and I hadn't heard of them. I did look them up to see like, what, what is this? You know, am I getting one book out of a series or, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and they did have like a Wikipedia page for the author. So it's not like the author was a complete unknown, but um, I'd never heard of it. And I thought I'm judging the book by its cover. And maybe at some point in the next decade, I'll get around to reading, but um, <laughs> I, you know, you can't, you can't beat, uh, I think it was a dollar a pound or something like that. That's yeah. That's, that's nice. And, and that actually was a, a scale, the sale. So they did the sale for four days and day one, it was a dollar a pound. Day two, it was 75 cents a pound. Day three, ah. it was 50 cents a pound. And day four, it was just take what you want. Wow. Yeah. See, that those types of things kill me because it's like, you know, it's like, wow, I can get this for, you know, a dollar a pound. But yeah, if I just wait a day, but someone else might pick it right, up. Right, right. But if so, I just wait three days and no one picks it up, I get it for free. And so it's I, like, how? I how went by myself the first day. And, and got the things that I wanted. And I went with my kids the second day and saw some other stuff where it's like, oh, I think my son might like those books. I'm going to go ahead and grab – it was the full full set of uh, Stephen Lawhead's or Lawhead's um, most recent like five-part series that he did. It's a fantasy series called The Skin Map or something like that. But, okay. Um, but I had given my son some of my Stephen Lawhead books and he enjoyed them. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll grab those for him. I – I know he he every once in a while just needs something to read, and so my yep. my college son. But uh, anyway, so back back to Dune. Uh, that's kind of my history with it. That's kind of your history with it. Uh, that's kind of its place in sci-fi history, and it's it's kind of interesting because we had two things come out this year that they said could never be filmed. Of course, Dune was filmed twice before, but Foundation <laughs> and Dune both come out this year. Foundation mm-hmm. as a TV series on Apple Plus and, right. and Dune as a big budget uh, sci-fi movie by Denis Villeneuve. I don't know how to say his name. He's, he's French-Canadian, I think. Yes. And, um, yeah, so we have these two just foundational, as I said before, sci-fi masterworks that are put on on the screen for us here in 2021. Yep. So now, and, Steve, oh, go ahead. It's it, it would be difficult for me to think uh, maybe outside the Lensman series or something like that, you know, something as big as these two, and to have them both come out in the same year is just kind of like, wow. Well, it... It is difficult because these are the the big ones. And the reason, the only reason in college that I read Dune is because I knew it was one of these books, you know, mm-hmm. the like, like 2001, like foundation, which I had read uh, foundation in, in high school. Um, there are very few things that are as big as these are. And I, again, it was in a used bookstore. I remember going to the Griffin bookstore in South Bend, Indiana and I was downstairs and that's where all their sci-fi books were. And I saw Dune and they had the whole set and I'm just, okay, I'm going to get this. And I remember reading it over the summer while I was traveling with our, our traveling gospel music team. And 
just i remember laying on the on the floor in the van which now it doesn't sound too safe but <laughs> um, laying on the floor in the van and and reading dune uh as we're traveling around uh the united states singing gospel music so nice yeah that must have been awesome so now steve i i, I ask you what was your experience with this movie dune this is interesting because I wasn't really that interested in it. And it just, you know, it just came at a time where there's COVID and lots of other stuff happening with me personally, that it's like, you know, to whip up any type of real fervor about anything, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be something phenomenal. Um, and, you know, even with that, it's just, you know, whatever. But, um, so I said, well, I wanted to at least, you know, have the visuals and to, to understand it because I, I saw the other movie. I had thought that I had saw the other movie and understood it. And um, I figured since this is only the first half of it anyway, not a big deal. So I just turned it on and while I was doing other stuff. It was just in the background and I wasn't even listening to it. I just had the volume off. It was on mute. So I was like getting the visuals and I'm sort of like, okay, those are the characters. Of course, that's obviously Paul and blah, 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 blah. And, um, um, I think I finished it and then I was talking to, I think it was you and someone else. I'm not sure. Um, but I mentioned that I, I had watched it with the, it was on mute and someone said, Oh no, you have to listen to it. And I'm like, yeah, why do I yeah. have to listen to it? It was I when mean, we were recording stuff for uh, Supersonic. There we go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. And uh, was it Eric? It might have been Eric. I think so. Good, yeah. good friend of the podcast. Um, and um, he said, you know, you, you have to hear it. I mean, it's like, you know, throat singing and bagpipes and all this stuff. And I'm like, all right, you, you, you sold me on throat singing and bag, bagpipes because if anyone knows me, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm Scots and I like you, the bagpipes and, and the throat singing is just a personal thing for you. But yeah. Yeah. It is. I really enjoy to hear the throat singing, especially if it's done well. Um, I don't understand a lot of it and it might have some, you know, odd religious significance that I'm not picking up, but it just sounds really interesting when I hear it. Um, so I, turned it on and I started listening to it and it was like a completely different experience. And I was like, okay, all right. So I, I even like put my headphones on the way that our television is set up. I can't put my headphones on and hear it from the television, but I turned it on my phone and I had it playing on the television. I had to sync it up perfectly, you know, because it was two different devices. But, um, so I could listen to it through my headphones and watch it on the TV at the same time. And it was really audibly interesting. Yeah. Um, probably one of my favorite parts was the, uh, the music and the sounds, the tones, all of that stuff. Um, and the way that they included so many different uh, human elements to it. You know, there's some some vocalizations, but you wouldn't really call them singing. I don't think. I don't think there's a lot of uh, lyrics to it. But there's there's that, you know, like I said, like the throat singing and different types of things like that, um, where it's really affecting. I had planned to see this in the theater. I really, really wanted to see it in the theater. And our local theater, which I, I talk about these theaters all the time, but we have 
I, there's three theaters I go to now. One I can walk to. It's not great. One I can drive to that's 10 minutes away. That's a little bit better experience, but it's still pretty small. And then there's the, the big multiplex, the AMC that I go to that's a 25 minute drive, maybe even 30 minutes, which I don't mind. I like to drive, put on a book or a podcast. And it's, it's great. I, I like the long drives, but, um, I watched this in bed. Uh, I watched it on my, on my, uh, iPad and watched it in two sittings or one, one where I was laying down in bed and one where I was sitting, um, out in my living room. Uh, but I had on headphones and I was so glad I did because the screen is right, right close to me, you know, and, and the sound was, was then, just right in my ears instead of coming out of my iPad right. uh, speakers, which it was a much, much, much better experience than I would have had if I'd you know been just watching it sitting on the, the put the iPad on the table and just had it playing into the room. But uh, yeah, and so I I don't feel like I lost out on the experience. I can see why they talk about you need to see this in the theater. You need to see this in the theater. I can see why they say that, but I also feel like there's a problem when people say that kind of thing because saying that really comes from what I would call a position of, uh, I don't know, social privilege. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure, but you know, in our day and age right now to say, you must see this in the theater really is a little bit tone deaf for a lot of the people in the room who are uh, unable to. You know, right. because of because of COVID, because theaters aren't open, because people don't want to go to theaters, because, you know, theaters might be distancing. And so there's fewer seats available and different things, all, all these all these things that kind of get put together uh, for them to say, you must see this in the theater. I'm just thinking, I, I really wish you hadn't said it that way. I really wish you weren't like laying it down as directive to me, you know, and telling me if I don't see it in the theater, I'm seeing it wrong, which they're. <laughs> I get why they're saying it because there are a lot of big shots that are wide, far, far back from the action. And you have tiny, tiny people walking across the screen uh, <laughs> to get scale, you know, and, and if any movie wants to have scale, it's going to be a movie like this, you know, like mm-hmm. Dune, like Star Wars, you know, like some of the Star <laughs> Trek movies, you know, you, you want scale. You want it to be big seeing V'ger on the movie screen couple years ago or a year and a half ago, whenever it was, was a scale I had never seen. I mean, when I first watched Star Trek, the motion picture, I videotaped it off of ABC's Sunday night movie presentation or whatever. Uh, there are, <laughs> there are times in that movie where you, you have no clue what's going on because it's, sh- it's dark shots of a big thing that's been cropped, you know, and it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Uh, so I get what they're saying about you need to see the scale and the spectacle, but I feel like I did not miss out on anything by watching it with a screen that is 10 inches away from my face with <laughs> headphones on. Like I was enthralled. It was, well, I, I don't want to, well, yeah, we do want to give it away. Don't we like, let's, let's give talk about it's our, all- our, ultimate like we, we can get into some of the details and i don't know if we'll do the spoiler organ for this or not it's a really old book i i think some things we might want to be careful about one. like well that's true too i, th- I think <laughs> we want to be careful to stay away from some things with uh you know like characters that may not make it through the movie and also okay. characters that may not make it through the movie but we might see again because <laughs> right yeah 
but yeah. But anyway, you, you kind of started talking about how you were thinking about the sound and the the visuals and everything. But but all things considered, what what is your what's your review of this movie? Like, would you give it a star rating? If you were to give it a star rating, what would it be? See, it's sort of like the further I get into like colossal epics like this, it's harder to actually give star ratings to things sometimes. Unless it's like just really bad or really good, there's just so much nuance to it that, you know, like I might give the the soundtrack of a 4.5, you know, but then, you know, with other things, I might give the, 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 the script, um, you know, because it didn't follow the, the book exactly. I, you know, I might give that less, but it's, it's like, if, if like someone, like if someone was going to give me a million dollars to, <laughs> to put a, a star rating on it, um, Which I am not doing, by the way. Okay, just oh, then forget I, it. I don't want you to get disappointed when I don't give you that million dollars. So you should have faked me out because now. No, you're I'm not going to do it. Do, okay. No, yeah. I'd probably give it a between like a three point five and a four. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, Evan on Letterbox. So even though Evan's not with us, he's with us in spirit. Uh, his review on Letterbox is a four star review. Uh, but his four star review is pure spectacle in a good way. So that's uh, that's six word review for him. I gave on Letterbox. I gave Dune four and a half stars. Now five stars. I'm very stingy with five stars, and I maybe if I watch this again to see like in six months, I might bump it up to five, or I might just keep it here at four and a half, or I might decide I hate it and give it one. But um, I really doubt that's going to happen, but I did give it four and a half stars. And my seven word review was grand, emotional, bombastic, artistic, sci-fi. Absolutely wonderful. And, and sci-fi is one word. Yeah. I, I hyphenated it. So it counts as one cheater. I mean, yeah, good, good. Hey, when you're doing seven words, man, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> I know I'm joking. Go ahead. <laughs> I did. I can't remember what the movie was, but I did do one. It was a seven word movie review and I just rambled on and on. And then I said <laughs> something about how I, I rambled on and on just like this movie or something like that. Like the, this review is too long, just like the movie was or something like that. But um, wow. yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we should just go ahead and, and uh, talk through some of the, the four parts of our review quadrant that I, I do sometimes, which is to talk about story style characters and themes. And okay. some, some of the conversation will bleed into other parts of the conversation. And some conversation parts might be shorter, uh, like characters. We could even start with characters. Uh, there are a lot of characters, although there's a handful that are important. And Paul Atreides is one. Um, so speaking of, characters what stuck out to you about the the different characters in this movie <laughs> um A any standouts or any uh well the, the interesting downs? thing to me is i i started to watch it and i'm like 
there when it comes to spectacles like star wars and the avengers movies it's like i guess it's hard to not reuse actors and i just kept seeing <laughs> it's like that's that star wars guy that's that avengers guy that's that you know i mean it, it was it just seemed like there were very few new faces yeah yeah this. so you have zendaya so, zendaya who's all over the place but marvel yeah, oscar Spider-Man. isaac star wars star jason wars. momoa aquaman, aquaman stellan yeah. skarsgård avengers josh yeah. brolin he was the he one of the biggest Ultron. comic book one of the biggest comic book uh, characters in in film which is uh jonah hex um and also thanos uh oh, thanos, that's right. yeah. dave batista he's yeah. in there uh um yeah. Drax, uh, Drax yeah. yeah, Javier Bardem, who is a great actor, but he's from No Country for Old Men and he fan, uh, and also uh, one of the Bond movies. But he's mm-hmm. in here. I mean, it is definitely a big budget spectacle movie. You're right. You know, you're gonna have all these people, and I'm not sure how much these people are bringing people in. Although Timothy Chalamet, I think is how you say his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Atreides. Yeah. Uh, he is bringing in some of the younger crowd and Zendaya might too, although she didn't do much in this movie. So if you came to see Zendaya, sorry um, <laughs> for those seven or, minutes, or Zendaya, however you say her name, but um, Timothy Chalamet, but- my, my kids were interested in seeing Dune. I want to say my kids, I mean, my daughters, because they had heard Timothy Chalamet was in it and they didn't, they had not seen him in much of anything, but he is definitely in the, the zeitgeist for, for young people in my children's circles anyway. So. Okay. That's interesting. Cause I hadn't seen him in anything and I thought he did a really good portrayal of Paul. Um, not perfect. Um, you know, I probably, still probably would have gone a little younger with the character and had him sort of age into what you got with uh, Timothy's character by the end of, of maybe the second movie to see, you know, that sort of um, like how experience can mm-hmm. age a person, that type yeah. of a feel to, to the character where you, st- uh, it's sort of like Hayden Christensen, you know, he started out whiny and he ended up whiny, but it's like, he was supposed to be whiny, but by the end, you sort of wanted to see something besides whiny, you know, and, and, and you didn't really, I didn't, for me, I didn't really get that. I still got, you know, the, the whininess of the character through it. Um, well, and at the beginning, I thought he did good with the character because he was supposed to be whiny, but with, uh, with Timothy, I think he, where he played the character and where the, the character was for me, was would have been better to have all of that um the you know the, what he brought to the character uh to influence the the final version of the character hmm. to see that that sort of a change that progression in the character um not to say that he did a a bad job i think he he did a a good job because that's just how he acts and with the script that he had and all that stuff, obviously his character doesn't know things. He's, he's playing that he's, he, he obviously his, his person, he knows that something's going to happen later on in the script, but he's playing as if he doesn't. I mean, sometimes you, like if you, if you're playing a character and you know, the, the end is, is going to be 
you know, you're going to be redeemed in the end. Sometimes as an actor, you can be a bad actor and you're just going to be like, you know, oh, I have to, you know, but I'm going to win at the end. So you just have this like false bravado, you know, sometimes in a character. And I, I don't, I don't like that because it just sort of betrays the actor. And he did a, a really good job with the, you know, he, he had a, a lot of um, hard things to do at the beginning of the movie to try to get his his mind into leading. And, you know, what if I don't lead? And, you know, Leto says, you know, well, as long as you're my son, you know, that's the only thing I, I ask of you, really. And things like that, where it showed that progression where um, as he becomes a better actor and i'm not saying he's a bad actor but as he becomes a better actor i think he showed me that he's he has the tools to to make those changes work within a character within a movie um you know going forward so he he impressed me and the character itself is an interesting character because you have this guy who he's lived a life of of luxury but at the same time he's also been training you know so he's he's not He's not a layabout. He's not a wasteabout. He he's someone who uh, has learned skills and has learned the, to be able to fight in battle and has learned to be able to protect himself. Although he's he's not had to necessarily use those skills other than with his trainers who are ruthless with him um, or, or or tough on him anyway. Mm-hmm. And and so you have this this character who doesn't necessarily want to lead the family, the house. But he is going to, he knows he's going to, but he also, he knows he's going to, because that's what happens in our family. But he also has these kind of premonitions of the future and feelings about the future. And, and so then, cause you're saying he, you know, you're, you're saying the actor knows what's going to happen later on in the script, but here you actually have a character who has a little bit right. of knowledge of what's going to happen later on in the script, which is why I kind of laughed yeah, but, when you said that. Cause well, but, it, it, but it's there. It's confusing to him and he's actually playing the confusion. Yes. And he's doing you that know, well. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So what I'm curious about it, basically this movie is leading him up to the point where he's going to have to finally act. And so you have these th- little small moments where he has to choose to act or not. And what is he going to do? But the next movie is, going to be about him being proactive it has to be because if it's not this is gonna be really not a very uh uh satisfying character arc for this character if he's just constantly pushing against the expectations uh that he has or uh the the necessity of what he needs to do and Mm -hmm. and so in in this movie anyway i think by the by the end of the movie he's pushed into a, a spot where necessity demands that I must act and I must do something and I must do something that I don't want to do, but it has to be done. So I'm going to do it my way or I'm going to try to anyway. And and toward the end of our, our review, I really want to talk about the final scene in a spoiler way. So maybe we will play the spoiler organ. I don't know. But okay. the final, the, the climax of this movie is something that uh, without spoiling, I was very, I was emotionally affected by it. Oh, wow. I was not crying like Bill and Ted face the music. <laughs> okay. I, I, I didn't cry like that. And I, I, but I, I was emotionally affected by it because of what it was pushing our characters into. 
And and that's what good plots do, right? They they push mm-hmm. the characters and and you know, whenever you're sitting down to write a story, a lot of times you're asking yourself the question, um, what happens next? And your answer is going to be to make things worse for the character, Correct. you know, and so that when they get to the end of the movie, they've dug themselves out of whatever horrible thing is about to happen. The Death Star is about to mm-hmm. blow up the entire rebellion or whatever, you know. Well, that's that's our climax. And then after that everything's good for our characters until the sequel. And this movie doesn't really follow that because this movie is half a story. That's the Mm -hmm. one ding that I gave this movie, I think. And the one reason why I would give it four and a half stars instead of five is because it stops in the middle of a story arc, a character arc. And it has to, the book is huge. The book is huge. And yeah. for David Lynch to try and cram it all into one, that was one of the problems and one of the reasons why it was somewhat confusing. I think you can still follow the story if you're watching it, I think. But you don't necessarily know all the nuance and what's really going on and why is what why is that important? Yeah. Who's that character and that kind of thing? There's just so I much story. I think it tells a movie. I mean, it tells a story, but the depth of what Herbert put into his story you don't get no no and then with really the with the TV miniseries really they had three hours to play with and so that was it you know they right. were able to do that it was a two night event or think or something like that yeah again I didn't watch it on cable because I didn't have cable but this... I think Foundation is doing it better because they're taking an entire season of TV to do it have you watched Foundation yet I haven't had a chance I okay. don't have right. uh, Apple TV. So don't ruin it for me. I won't. I won't. Uh, but you're <laughs> right. Uh, now, on the flip side of that, it's not the book. So right. there's yeah. there's they they bring in some very interesting new elements that are original to the show, so that they can follow the timeline with regular actors. <laughs> Uh, that they can keep the same actors in the same roles and, and they, they do some of the tricks that Isaac Asimov does, but then they take it up a couple notches as well. And, (laughs) um, yeah, but anyway, uh, it's, it's sweeping, it's sprawling, it's big sci-fi. Uh, it, it, I really enjoyed foundation. I, 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 yeah, immensely enjoyed it and was very disappointed, very disappointed when I, uh, realized, oh, that was the last episode of the season. And it was, it was a disappointment. <laughs> Same kind of disappointment I felt, even though I kind of knew already, I think I had read or seen somewhere that it wasn't the whole book. Mm-hmm. But when I, when it says Dune, part one, <laughs> no, no, because it does, it just, it just stops right in the middle of a character arc. It, it stops right after an emotional beat in that character arc that I'm like, I want to see what happens next, which is good when you're doing a part one and a part two, you want to leave them wanting more. You want them to say, I want what's going to come next, but we're not going to get part two until 2023. This is not a Lord of the Rings situation where they film them back to back. This is not a Superman one and two situation where they're filming them back to back. This is, we got to wait two years. We're, we're going back to star Wars territory where it was every other year. And that's if 2023 is actually when it comes out, because that's just when they are saying that it's going to come out. Who knows? Cause it's only in pre-production right now. They haven't started shooting. They have to figure out schedules around these actors, which is why 
it's a risk to do the Lord of the Rings thing. It's a risk to do the Back to the Future 2 and 3 thing. If Back to the Future 2 had been a bomb, would we have gotten the third part in the series? Maybe because they already filmed it. Because it, you know, they were filming it while while number two was going out, you know it. Oh, man. And imagine if this didn't turn out the way, you know, if if it wasn't as as popular as it was, they would have just been like, "All right, you only get part one." <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't a given that we were going to ever get part two. Which I hate. I and I get why you want to take the chance, you want to take the risk, but for me, I feel like you, you need to take the risk but still find a way to do a complete story. Yeah. Yeah. What they should have done with John Carter is saying, you know, we're going to do, I forget how many books there were seven. I don't know. Like we're going to, we're going to commit to telling the entire John Carter story and we're just going to put everything behind it because it's not like Disney needed to recoup all the losses from John Carter to finance another movie. Uh, Disney was doing pretty well, I believe. <laughs> they were, they were, <laughs> you, but know, you know why part of the behind, behind the scenes thing there was they were looking at John Carter as another um, boys franchise. And then that was when they, they got star Wars and like, we don't need this anymore. And, That's sad. And they didn't put a big marketing push behind it because Not they didn't need to put a big marketing push behind no. it. They didn't need it to be successful. And yep. and it wasn't. But it it was a successful, in my opinion, it was a successful blockbuster adaptation of, again, a foundational piece of science right. fiction history. Right. Uh, whatever you think about John Carter, the books, as far as like, are they good or not? Um, they were pulpy. They were popular and they were influential. Yeah, definitely. We wouldn't have Superman without John Carter, I think. Nope. Nope. We probably wouldn't have had Dune because I think he took a lot of his uh, uh, ideas from the, you know, the desert planet of Mars. Now, the, the thing with Dune is it did come from him actually studying to do, I think, an article on ecology. And he was actually in a place where there were dunes and Mm -hmm. and he was as he was looking at that that that's what triggered him to say there's something here but then he's also like anyone else he's building on what has come before and but he's also doing new things you know the sandworms and the spice and and uh it's the other thing is this world and and this is something that i find fascinating this is a world without computers Mm-hmm. They only use the most rudimentary kind of computers. And so anything that requires calculation comes from a mutated human. Yeah. And and that's the guy in this movie. I can't remember his name. Um, Luther Howitt. That's How- it. And I'm saying that wrong. Dune fans, I do apologize. But anyway, he has been adapted. He has been created into this person who can make calculations and remember numbers and as a human, a human computer. And they do a cool thing with him in the movie where his, he has this eyelid kind of thing that flips back as he's doing the calculations. And he's almost like a human adding machine with the sound effect that they go with that. And it's, yeah. And the reason is because uh, technology rebelled against them. There was a, a war versus yeah. the computers, you know, and versus artificial intelligence. And uh, yeah, so it's it's a really neat 
idea to play with. And then you also have the spice stuff. This is the other thing from this movie is you don't quite get what the spice does that makes it so important. You see what it does. You see it turns, you know, it gives uh, Paul Atreides a, a premonition of the future. And it's very important for space travel, but they don't really get too much into the the technology and, and why it's yeah. important for technology. And a lot of people think it's the spice that that makes uh, uh, faster than light possible, but it's that's a shortcut. You know, it's the spice that that affects the guildsmen mm-hmm. to the point where they can understand space to the point where they can then use the 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 abilities that the spice has given them to fold space to be able to do that so and to do it safely so it's it's a little complicated in the books it gets more into exactly what it does but of course in the in the in the movies a lot of people think it's the spice that folds space yeah it's not it's not fuel for the ships right yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah it's basically fuel for the the people who fly the ships well and it's 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 it, well it's that humankind evolution you know where it's like taking a human and 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 evolving them into something more than human but also right. something less than human less than in human, some ways yep. you know and yep. and you have paul Atreides who he and I, I said the name like four or five different ways but that's because and i tell my kids this all the time when someone mispronounces a word often it's because they have only experienced that word in print and they read mm-hmm. it you know and um Yep. But, but I, anyway. I, have a, I have a friend that does that all the time. <laughs> she says, she says, oh, that went awry. And I'm like, it went what? <laughs> awry. 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 <laughs> and she does it all the time because she's just an amazing reader. And, uh, you know, she she reads 10 times more than I do. But it's, it, you know, but she reads. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the pro- problem. But um, it's not really a problem. It's, it's you know, something that. That you know makes her singular. I mean, I wouldn't have, re- you know, I, I probably would remember her for other things, but I remember her because she does that, and it's it it reminds me that you know reading is good and et cetera, et cetera. Well, so. you have different kinds of communication, and reading is one kind of communication, Absolutely, but it's not auditory yep. usually, and yep. uh, and then you have the verbal communication, and if you're not verbally communicating with people who are using these words, then yeah, you're not you're not going to pick it up. So yeah. Uh, That's why talking is good, people. Reading and talking, two good things. So Paul is also the trope of the one, the Messiah. He's he's going to be the one who has been prophesied by spice people, (laughs) like they. And it's there's some interesting stuff that when you get into the Bene Jesuits and and all the things with them, uh, I feel like they did a good job presenting it in this movie. And that's the one thing we're missing in this conversation is that Evan came to this movie cold. He did not have any or very little pre-knowledge. I mean, he knew about the spice, he knew about the worms and he, he knew about the things that, you know, are part of the popular consciousness. But, but my understanding based on my conversation with him was that uh, he had not read or seen anything. And so he was coming into this cold and I would have loved to have heard his his take there as far as did he understand it did he get it right. um 
I had another friend who I almost had that conversation with, but then he went and watched the other movie. And so he kind of had, uh, <laughs> he, he had a cliff notes that he got to read before he got into this, this movie. He loved it by right. the way. Like I, I have not talked to anyone. I'm sure there's people out there and I know I've seen one stars next to people's names when you're looking at reviews. Um, not people I know though, but everyone I've talked to has loved this movie as far as it just being a visual feast it just brings you in it's the avatar effect uh you know for me avatar i didn't care about the story because i was just brought into the world the 3d the 3d world did anyone care about the movie i mean the 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 plot it was just like well some people didn't care about the plot enough that it didn't matter and some people didn't care about the plot enough that it, that's all that mattered it was like, this is a terrible movie because the story stinks. And some people were totally swept away by it and, and just gave it like the most glowing of reviews, even when they were talking to their friends. Uh, and, and then later on changed their mind because they realized <laughs> I, I'm not gonna, you know, name any names, but me. It's, it's me. <laughs> you. Oh, you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you kid. So, man, kind of blasting through the characters. Lady Jessica, uh, I thought she did a fantastic job playing uh, Paul's mother and playing uh, a person who came from a lower class who's brought into this upper class. Um, she never got married to to, uh, to Duke the Duke, but basically they were, they were married because, but they le- legally they couldn't get married because socially it wasn't acceptable, but theirs was a marriage of, of love and not convenience. And, right. Um, but then her as the mother, she's part of the benefit Bene Jesuit. And so there, she's supposed to give them a daughter uh-huh. to be this special one. And instead it's a boy. And she, was able to determine the the sex of the child so that she could give Duke Leto a an heir and went against the the Bene Jesuit people and it's one of those things where it's this kind of okay there's this prophecy but we're misreading it and uh even as she's doing something to go not quite go against it but not be a part of it she ends up being a part of it yeah you know and um, it's, it makes for great dramatic tension, but then it also reflects reality. When you look at the old Testament prophecies and you look at the the different parts of David's family and David's own life where you're like, this shouldn't be part of the Messiah's lineage. Why is Rahab in there? You know, and, <laughs> uh, and, it, but it, it's all, you know, it all fits into what God said was going to happen because God is God and he knows what's going to happen. However you want to look at it. But, um, he made the prophecy of the Messiah, gave it to some prophets and the prophets said it to the people and the people misinterpreted it and didn't understand it. <laughs> and then when it happened, some of the people were able to accept it and some of the people weren't because it wasn't what they were expecting or wanting whether right. they expected it or not. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Rahab, 
I find it fascinating. She's part of Jesus's uh, lineage, you know. Yeah. Uh, because she was not just uh, an outsider, not just not Jewish, but right. was a was a prostitute. So then it gets me wondering why were these Israelite spies there? Like, were they there because that's what the place was? <laughs> I I and I'll be honest. I think that it is quite possible that they were there at that house of ill repute because they were there to be at a house of ill repute. And that's how they first interacted with the, the people there. I don't know, but I do wonder that sometimes. And could be, but you know, I mean, there's, there's other reasons why people could be in places like that or be near places like that. They, they didn't necessarily yeah. have to be in the place to see the people and know, get to know the people. And, and Rahab had an understanding of the people like she's looking at the these people and saying oh their god did these things we want to be a part of that we yeah our people are not going to survive against this uh will you help us because we actually believe your god is powerful and real and so there's a lot of things in her favor that make her a very interesting uh, person to study but there's also a lot of things in there that just make you say, look at Jesus's line. It's messy because it's human yeah. and it's fallen, you know? So. Yeah. And, and, and when you see lineages like that, I mean, Jesus is, is, is the basis of it. But whenever you see someone's lineage and it's like, where did this person come from? And it was like, well, you know, this person, that person, and it's sometimes it's the most unlikely combination of events that brought them there. But it's like, that's amazing how God could use these completely, you know, polar opposites, other side of the world people to, to come together and, and to, to bring forth more of his glory. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another thing that's fascinating about that is you don't just have the lineage and that she's a part of that. You have the inspired word of the gospels and they include her in mm -hmm. that, you know, they, yeah. they don't try and whitewash it. They don't try to hide it. God's inspiring the gospel writers. And, and one of them is like, yeah, this is part of my, my family line that I'm going to include as I look at who Jesus was and, and look at the prophecies saying who Jesus would be. Um, they included Rahab in there, mm -hmm. which yeah. is another one of those, huh, okay, this is important. It's not just a detail. It's an important enough detail that deserves thought. Yeah. Because it's there. Definitely. And it's, and it, yeah, you're right. And it's not the type of thing where you just gloss over it mentally either. You know, dig in and find out why. Why is that important? Yeah. You know, it, it draws you back to those times and those places and the things where God did great things. There's other names there that I am more inclined to gloss over because it's just name, name, name. Can't pronounce this one. Can't pronounce that one. Um, and, and maybe that's that's maybe wrong of me because it's there. You know, it's there for a reason. But Rahab is there and it's it's like, hey, here's a great big red thread that we're going to wrap around Rahab's name here and make yeah. it very obvious that you can see her in, in this, in this whole thing. So, but yeah. anyway, back to, uh, back to Dune 
head. And back to the uh, the characters. Oscar Isaac, I wish we got to see more of him in this movie. He's so. yeah, I. But what he brings to the part, I loved. See, I mean, I've seen him in other movies before, not just Star Wars. But I do like the way that this character contrasts against um, Poe in Star Wars. <laughs> like, this is a a serious guy who takes his job seriously, but who has a loving side and and wants his son wants the best for his son. Um, <laughs> yeah, Poe, I wasn't really a big fan of, and he just seemed younger. Yeah. With this guy, he seems my age, you know. So it's it's like I can almost, you know, see me talking to my son while he's talking to his son, and yeah. it it, uh, it brought me to a different side of him. I'm not a huge fan of him as an actor. I don't think he did a poor job, um, but again, it was just one of those those characters where it's hard for me to see past what I know him in. Yeah. And uh, it it would have been nice to see a, a more fresh faces. I feel like he did enough with this that I didn't see Poe. It wasn't until afterwards I was thinking about, Oh, you know what? Poe, that impulsive young, uh, swashbuckler who doesn't do it right all the time, you know? And then you have this guy who is, uh, stoic and, and is stepping is methodically stepping into what he understands is probably a trap. But he's doing it anyway because this is what we do. This is how we do things here, and this is how we respond to the emperor. And this is, yeah. Uh, Jason Momoa. <laughs> As I like the energy that he brought to Duncan Idaho. Um, it was nice to see Duncan Idaho be more of a part of the movie than he was in the the original. Um, but again, you know, it's 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 Aquaman. <laughs> yeah. That one. He's a good actor. I, I can't. I can't put it that past him either. He's a good actor. He he. You know, bit this part off and chewed it. He is. He is. And and one of the bright spots of the movie, I think, because this is a pretty dour movie. You know, it's it's not uh, uplifting, adrenaline. <laughs> you know, it, it's. But when he's on, there is adrenaline. There is some adrenaline, and there is some <laughs> testosterone. You know, and he's. It's not. It's not my man. It's my boy. <laughs> Oh boy. Let's yep. let's let's switch up the let's switch up the the verbiage here, you know, because I'm yep. talking to someone who's younger than me. So, yeah, yep. not my man, my boy, my boy. Yep. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. We could go through all of them, but the the one, and maybe there's more that you want to talk about that we can. But uh, Stellan Stars Skarsgård is Baron Harkonnen. All right. I was blown away by this guy. And this is another one who I wanted to see more of. Like, I feel like we got just enough in this movie. We, we got to know Paul and Jessica enough. And that was good. Leto. I wish there was more of him. Zendaya with, uh, as Chani, which she's there. She's definitely there, but could there they, be any more of her though. I mean, there should really, there there's shouldn't so much there, more in the book. There's actually less, <laughs> There's less of her in the book in this part, yeah, because, you know, yep. because he's just finding her and meeting her um, and she he's dreaming about her. But in the next one, we will definitely she's got more to do. Right. It's a, she's an important character to the book and, and yep. to the series. But <laughs> but uh, Baron Harkonnen, what I loved about his portrayal, and this is a director choice and an actor choice kind of thing kind of coming together. I was 
taken away to Apocalypse Now and and yeah, uh, Marlon Brando. Like the Marlon Brando, um, just the bald head, the way he was, he would rub his head, uh, the different things that he did. Um, and he is a presence in this movie. Like he is just this overbearing, scary presence in the 84 movie. He's gross and he's a presence for sure, but he is, it's more gross than scary, but this yeah. guy, you just, he is, it's, it's, it's a menace. Yes. Where as the other one, it's more, you see him do things that are monstrous, like, you know, uh, popping the the heart plugs of, of people and stuff. it's just gross it's 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 gross and it's 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 like you don't want to get around him because of that it's it's so chaotic but with with the dylan skarsgård's portrayal it's it's menace you know yeah. you don't you don't want to be around him because it could be a thousand other things beside him you know that that are going to be your doom <laughs> and but you don't know but they're all coming from him you know, like he's, oh, yeah. he yeah. is the mastermind, this methodical mastermind who has his own evil machinations ready to go. And yeah. And, and even when things go wrong, he's, he's going to use it to his advantage and, right. oh yeah. What a presence. Yeah. He did a really good, uh, villain, you know, it's Darth, Darth Vader ish when Darth Vader is done well. And not, you know, having dad jokes yeah. <laughs> as his as his threats. Um, but yeah. Uh, anything else with the characters you want to talk about? Uh, Dave Bautista, I wish there had been more with him, but there will be more with him. Um, he's the henchman. He's the main henchman. And uh, for this one, he just did a lot of just that. kind of staring at things and and not quite reacting to things. It'll be interesting to see if he can bring like the same type of energy that uh, Jason Momoa does and to the second part, you know, maybe he's going to be the one that, that, uh, that has that type of energy on the, on the, the villain side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to show us that. Yeah. I'd like to see that. <laughs> uh, uh, unfortunately, we didn't have any uh, Patrick Stewart. In oh, this. That's Patrick bad, Stewart man. was Gurney, and yep. uh, Josh Brolin played that character in this one. And and then, um, and then there's there's no Sting in this. No, well, not yet. There there very well could be. You never know. I guess I, maybe cool maybe if they like pulled him out of retirement. Oh man, Sting is one of the most cringy parts of the 1984. Uh, really, you don't didn't like his. I didn't his like his. I didn't like his costuming. <laughs> his wardrobe was a problem for me in a few scenes. Or lack of it. <laughs> yes, that's what was cringy. Uh, and, uh, okay. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on. Let's move on to okay. So that's character uh, plot. We could talk about a little bit, but this is a pretty straightforward plot in the sense that it's about politics it's about um the politics of war in some cases but it's really about the politics of power and it's a power struggle and whoever controls arrakis controls the galaxy because the spice is so needed 
And it's it's in this, you know, when the spice production slows down, the Harkonnens have some spice and they're able to name their price on, yeah. on the spice. Yep. And it's nice. And <laughs> I'll stop now. But the the plot is just you have House Atreides who is brought into Arrakis to replace House Harkonnen. And basically it's kind of a power struggle they that was done to them. They didn't want to go there. They lived on a water planet. Yeah. But that was done to them to force the issue and to cause conflict. And and then what comes out of that conflict? And yeah. so I'll, when is a gift not a gift? Yeah. Is one of the lines in the movie. Yeah. I don't know if it's in the book, but it's it's just perfect because it's like what I mean, okay, now all of our resources and all of our everything has to be geared towards making this thing a viable option or else everyone suffers and we are vilified. So thank you for this wonderful gift. Right, right. <laughs> and and so in this you have a number of people and obviously when you have the the politics side of things, but it's not just I mean, this is not a democracy, right? This is a it's an emperor who yeah, controls right, these yeah. these who leads these houses and then you have the leaders of these houses who are born into it whether they want to or not this is their family responsibility it's it's the family line and and that's what you're going to do and that's why the duke needed a son is to be the next duke and so there's all of that where they're they're thrust into these situations that they would not have necessarily chosen because some of the people in power aren't people who are seeking power. Baron Harkonnen is seeking power. Paul Atreides is not seeking power. And, right. you know, so you have th- those different angles of things, which kind of gets into some of the theme as well. But, but then like what makes the plot complicated is the details behind what's going on. You know, so if you're, if you were watching this and it was about medieval England, the historical stuff, if you knew knew about the history, you might might be doing better understanding the movie. But at least there's a context of I understand swords, I understand land, and I understand human emotion. Here you throw in the spice and you throw in the Bene Gesserit and you throw in religious orders that aren't real. They're they're there and they're made up and, and you don't necessarily understand them. This is where it gets complicated. I feel like the movie does a good job, but again, I wish I could talk to someone who hadn't seen or read anything before to be able to find out, like, did they, did they follow all these things? Yeah, it's, there's a whole lot where when I dug back into it and in other, um, and other media, I was like, that's nowhere in the movie unless I completely missed like the, the, the Kwisatz Haderach is the one who is going to be able to like shorten the, I I forget exactly what it is, but to, to shorten the time between the now and, and their desired goal, you know, or the one that can, can be able to, to see that, that and and bring them to that point that's why that person is is so desired for the uh, Bene Gesserit and it's sort of like i i didn't get that <laughs> until i started digging into you know the whole thing it, it just seemed like the Kwisatz Haderach was just another word for the messiah 
And it was just sort of like the person who was going to be the embodiment of the salvation that that Mm -hmm. whatever is needed here. And, you know, I think defining what salvation looks like for this Messiah, and I'm putting quotes on salvation, um, is going to be what is going to make the movie really make sense to a lot of people when you see both of them played out. Because... You see these grand vistas and these wonderful actors and fantastic CGI. And I mean, I, I, it was flawless to me. I didn't see any, any problem with it, but sometimes that just, it just masks over like in, um, in avatar, it just masks over the, the flaws in the script. And it's just sort of like, you know, but Hey, but what about the, never mind that look at this. You know, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I, I do, but I a part of that, that is that. also that it's half a movie too. It is, and, yeah. you know, this is so we'll see. We'll, I... we'll see with part two, but some of what you're saying might be addressed in part two, and if it's not, it's even worse because they had two movies to do it. In. <laughs> but... <laughs> exactly. You know, so my three and a half to four might drop it down to you know yeah, negative one because something from the book that you would pick up in the movie, I don't think, is that the Bene Gesserit, the the way the prophecy works for them is that there is a they're working to make it happen. Yeah. Like the, the thing about the, um, uh, quiz cataract is that that's something that they are manipulating to yeah. make it happen. And they have been working with, uh, lady Jessica's DNA to bring her to the moment where she could be the one who could bring the Messiah. And, and she does, but it's not one what they want because they it's a it's a female order, and right. and they wanted a a girl you know who could be that, and instead you get Paul, and so they're, and this is what makes it interesting. Part of it is, uh, that's just the way that this world works with its religious order. You know they they have this prophecy, but they are they are making it come true. You know, and the interesting thing about again, talking about the, our Messiah, the real Messiah, mm-hmm. is that you have these prophecies, but it's to make sure you can recognize when it really happens. There is no way that they could take the Old, Old Testament prophets' prophecies and, uh, and force it to happen. Like all of the things that right. the Old Testament prophets talk about, you know, Bethlehem and, and all these different things, like it, there's just no way around it. They, they couldn't make it happen. It was impossible for them to make it happen. Right. Whereas yeah. with, with this movie here, it's not impossible to make it happen because that's what they're expected to do. And, yeah. and, and, and it goes wrong and it hasn't gone right yet and it doesn't work yet. So we're, we'll try again. We'll work at it again. And, um, and we'll also misunderstand the prophecy and, yeah, but when you're the one, you know, cramming the prophecy in, and even, I mean, one of the things that people don't realize is that the religious understandings of prophecy that the Fremen have were implanted there by the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. For the, for the most part. So what they're expecting is exactly what the Bene Gesserit want them to expect. So when they because they're it, manipulating it to make it yeah. happen, and yeah. it's all about power play. It's all about the power play. It's all about 
getting control, controlling the spice, controlling the galaxy. Um, and, and it's all these different powerful factions that aren't necessarily in direct conflict, but because they're not on the same side, they're in conflict. Right. Uh, but they I mean, have this, to work around each other. And This does bring up an interesting um, way to talk about this and two different things at the same time. Um, the character of Liet Kynes. Mm-hmm. What, did, what did you think? Her whole role here is she's the go-between between the Fremen and the Empire, basically. Uh-huh. And it's interesting to see like, who does she serve, you know, and she's trying to serve two masters, but as it says in scripture, you really can only serve one. Right. And, and the master she serves is, uh, is the Fremen. Yeah. But did you, did you see any, any problems with, uh, the, the changes that they made? No, not really. No. I think one of the problems that I, I see is that one of the commentaries that the that the series is trying to make is about um, the role of of women. Now we could go into a huge discussions about this, but what the book is is trying to say and how it it portrays women is that they are are the power behind the throne. Mm-hmm. You know, they are the Bene Gesserit. They're the ones that don't have the power, but wink, wink, they they have the power. And having Liet Kynes as a male in the original showed you that this role can't be can't be done by a woman, you know, because it's a it's a power struggle thing. It, that's why this is a man. To have them make the one gender swap in the entire thing. You know, I mean, I guess they could have made worse choices, but to have it as as someone who is a go between between the emperor and the you know the houses, it's sort of it's 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 just sort of it's too much, you know. <laughs> it's it's like it it's it's like it it shouldn't be a woman, not because women can't play this role or not because women can't do that that thing. But it's not serving the purpose of why this character is in the story in this point. It it didn't bother me. It didn't bother okay. me um, because there's so much else going on. And and the other thing is this book was written in 1965 mm-hmm. where it really was like, I mean, you had queens, you know, and you had yep. you had women in, in positions of power. But even then, they still weren't looked on with respect and you know, as obviously they, yeah, people respected the queen. Okay. Don't get me wrong, but it wasn't, uh, you know, the, the, the real power and the decisions were being made by men, you know? And, and so for Frank Herbert in 1965 to do these things and have the real power behind the throne, be the women and, and that kind of thing is one thing to do that now today, even though, yeah, there's still, there's still sexism. There's, there's still, um, uh, women still don't have the same social rights, maybe legal rights they have, but they don't have the same social rights as, as men in, in some places. And, but it's, it's much, much different world than it was in 1965. So some of those statements that, that Frank Herbert were making 
didn't need to be made necessarily in this movie. Okay. So that's, that's my take. My Ben's hot take. Ben's hot take. All right. Uh, but let's let's jump into some of the theme stuff, because one of the things I wanted to point out, and it goes along with the style of the movie, especially the musical style, is there were so many times when the the vocal chanting would come on and it's overbearing sometimes like it is just so loud and it's just like someone's yelling at you, you know, well, <laughs> and, and the truth is that's somewhat true. Because I feel like, and I haven't read anything to know if this is this is the actual intention, this is my feeling when it happened, because it happens in these emotional moments, that some of the the, the soundtrack, and, and by extension then the movie, is a call to lament, and a call mm-hmm. to lamentation. And in, in some ways, this movie has been crafted not to be a um, Star Wars clone or riding the coattails of Star Wars. This is in some ways an anti-Star Wars because the violence of this movie is not celebrated. Yeah. It is sometimes necessary. It is sometimes exciting, but it is something to be mourned. It is the the music doesn't say you should cheer the the violence. This movie says you need to lament the violence. And this is where I, I want to talk about the end of the movie, but I don't know how I can talk about it without getting into too many, too many spoilers with it. But uh, unlike Star Wars, this is not a, a movie that celebrates violence. This is not, <laughs> this is not a movie where like Flash Gordon, where it's just casual killing of people, you know, it's just yeah. like, left and right. I'm just going to do this, kill them. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And, and it's the good the guys death doing star that. explodes and they cheer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are victims on the death star. There are innocent people on the death star. Was it necessary? That's a whole nother conversation. Right. Arguments could be made both ways, but the bottom line is there were people on the death star who were killed because that's where they were. Yeah. Now they were killed as a, a sacrifice in some ways because it was saving the lives of other potentially more innocent people. But yeah, this is, but that's where they were. That's their job. Yeah. Star (laughs) Wars return of the Jedi ends and it's, there's a dance party with Ewoks, you know, and that is not how this movie ends. I I think that's safe to say. (laughs) Very few Ewoks in this movie. Yeah. Fortunately, fortunately they kept the Ewoks to a minimum, but, um, yeah, I I just loved and appreciated that this was a sci-fi thing that could bring in the wars side of the stars, but also kind of track with the the impact of that and and the yeah, just the fact that this is not something to celebrate, but something to lament. And it just was it just struck me as I was sitting in the theater. Now I'd already listened yeah. to the soundtrack a couple times. So I even knew what was coming at me and I wasn't sitting in the theater, sitting in my bed, but um, I knew <laughs> the music was coming at me and I knew what was going to be coming with the music. I did not realize how it was going to be used. And so it just, someone would die and it's just, die! <laughs> and he's, okay. All right. Yeah. I am, I'm supposed to, take this seriously and just that lament that you you hear in certain 
uh, cultures where you know sometimes it's even they they have even have a, a part of their culture paid lamenters paid criers mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. because because it's expected you know so it's it's just to to have that as as part of the the actual soundscape of it is uh it's amazing how how they were able how zimmer was able to do that so that was one of the things i just felt in this movie i mean you have jason momoa who's he's going into battle and he's and he's great at it you know but even then it's exciting but it's not like a a celebration of violence Uh and I appreciated that about this movie. This is one of the few times where I feel like I've seen that where it's not the point of the movie. Yeah. It's, it's a means to an end where it's not, you know, star wars. (laughs) It's in the name people. You expect it. Um, but when it happens in, and it sometimes it shows how catastrophic it is, you know, it's just, I mean, you know, to, to the people involved and, you know, it's, you have, you know, not to spoil it, but there's, there are some main characters that don't make it to the end Yeah, because that's how life is. And especially life when it involves conflict, armed conflict, you know? And, and just again, try not to spoil things, but the conflict at the end of the movie like so many stories we've talked about how people are just thrust into positions that they wouldn't choose to be in. And, and that's where I got emotional is watching Paul get pushed into this situation. He does not want to be a part of this. Yeah. And, and then when that all plays out and you see just the briefest bit of the aftermath, like I wanted to see more, but you see the <laughs> aftermath and that's where I was getting choked up because I'm watching the characters have to deal with the aftermath of the climax. And I'm realizing, okay, these characters are changed by this. This is the other thing is there's genuine change, like going into conflict with someone, it changes relationship. It changes mindset. It changes so much. And especially if you're going into armed conflict, that's going to result in wounds and casualties, you know? And so you have movies that, that, that show you this. You have red badge of courage. You have, uh, um, oh, I can't remember the uh, platoon. You have tour of duty, the TV series, you know, you have these different things that show you consequences to conflict. Mm-hmm. And, and this movie, while it doesn't quite get into all of that, because it's not a lot of time after the climax of the movie, there is some, and, and I, I found myself, and this is where I want to give full kudos to Timothy Chalamet is that his character work early on in the movie carried me through to that point to allow for an emotional response to that moment at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's something to be said about, an actor who can do that and especially someone who's that young um you know and maybe it's us in our advanced age you know looking back at, at, at our children who are you know the the age that he's supposed to be and stuff and and you know uh, projecting or something like that but um but yeah like i said you know he he had that 
that sense to him that he was, you know, he was playing that, that part in, in the moment and not, you know, exporting what he knew of the script to, you know, because mm-hmm. he, he, he knew that he was going to, you know, I mean, it, it was sort of like if, if, if someone said, you know, Hey, Hey, play this part. And then, you know, it, it near the end, they, they said, Oh, now do this script. It's like, wait a minute. I memorized the other script. No, no, just do this one. It's like, wait a minute. My character dies. I played it this way the entire time. And now that, you know, I mean, and, and all of a sudden you have to play this character a completely different way because it just, you just got handed something different, you know, and, and he plays it as, as if it's just, uh, he, he plays it accurately. He plays it as if it's happening, you know, he's, he's the character getting carried along through that and reacting accurately to what's happening as it's happening. And and that's a good actor, you know, and, and that's actually something you do see sometimes where they will do fake scripts for people so that you don't know this is what's going to happen. And you're not, you're not playing toward that thing because you're playing toward what you think is happening this way. And then now your character has to respond to that. And, and, you know, that's, that's improvisation too. Like improv theater, there's Mm -hmm. tends toward comedy, but the idea is to be able to react quickly and easily as, as it comes toward you. And yeah, so that's, those are my, my main thoughts about Dune. I mean, I, I speak in glowing, glowing um, words about this thing, but that's because it, emotionally affected me that's my seven words it's grand it was emotional it was bombastic it was big and 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 loud but it was also artistic i mean the the scenery and everything is just gorgeous and they're able to take a landscape that is kind of boring and 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 draw out the parts of it that aren't you know because it's just sand and sky and yeah um oh you know the other character we didn't talk about that i wish we'd seen more of the worm. Who's that? The worms. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be more in, in part two. Yeah. But yes, definitely. Man, there was not much of the worm in there. And yep. yeah, ripping off uh, Tremors. <laughs> <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> so cheap. <laughs> but uh, it would be, it, it'll be interesting. I don't know how much the other books get into the whole culture of the worm and that whole oh, they do oh boy it, do they and it's really it, weird and interesting it would be interesting if they could do a little bit of that in the, the second one i don't know how realistic that is but here's what um, i'm excited about with the second one is it's gonna be the second half of the of the book but then yeah. the director wants to do a third one that would be dune messiah and that's before it gets really weird i, I here's the other thing the the weirdness of the th- second half of the series carries me somewhat but i again i was re uh reading and then listening to the books and let's see here how far did i get which book did i get to i got through part of heretics of dune number five i didn't finish it okay um god emperor there was some good weird stuff in it children of dune (laughs) is is good but uh dune and dune messiah are the strongest bits of the the paul uh story and to get a three three uh episode movie series about dune and dune messiah i i think that there's some fascinating 
stuff they can do, and I'm, I'm excited about that. Do you think they would have to break Dune Messiah up into two? It's shorter, and I think that the storyline would allow it to, I think. And and I think that if they did like a two and a half hour or two hour fifteen minute movie, they could they could do it do it justice. All right then. Yeah. Yeah. Also, just throwing this out there, there is a series uh, I've not watched the whole TV series called The Expanse. It's an Amazon Prime original, I believe. Mm-hmm. But the book series that it's based on by James S. A. Corey, I am in the middle now of book three. No, I'm seventy-five uh, percent through book three. Uh, so it's it's uh, what's the first one? I can't remember what the first one's called. Second one's Caliban's War. Third one's Abaddon's Gate. Um, Leviathan Wakes, I think, is the the first one. But the, the third one that I'm reading right now, Abaddon's Gate, is I mean, these books are so good, and they are. I'm reminded of Dune. I'm reminded of Foundation. I'm reminded of. But it also has little bits of Star Wars excitement in it. Uh, but it also um, does get into, you know, consequence of violence and and do we want war? And it gets into ideas of religion in the future, especially when you're dealing with alien art, art uh, alien intelligence and just fantastic, fantastic series of books. What did you think of the discussions of religion in Dune Part 1? Uh it it was interesting. I did mark a couple and and in my in my book uh, a lot of it though felt like uh 1960s psychedelic discussions of religion. So like you're <laughs> you're including the ex- the consciousness expansion of of psychedelics right. in into it. Um yeah. We didn't even talk about the the famous scene about um fear Fear is the mind killer. Yeah. No, that's one of the things I had marked here. And and maybe I'll do a, a mini episode or something that's kind of a devotion about fear. But the where, where uh, he's facing fear and he says, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear, fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I'll permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of the times when people are watching something like this and they see all the religious overtones, because we live in a, what now it's sort of a post-Christian culture, but we're coming at least out of a Christian culture, you have the tendency to think of this almost as a um, a discussion about Christianity as the religion that they're talking about. You know, the Bene Gesserit is very uh, much like an order of nuns. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the Fremen who are very much uh, like an Islamic type of a feel to it. So you have all these different things. And I think a lot of people mistake that for uh, what Christianity actually is. So, you know, to have someone who I don't think Herbert was coming out of a particularly Christian uh, surroundings in his family. I think he just sort of had his own idea of what religion was or should be. Um, and then importing it into this and then, you know, filtering it through Denis wave and then having us trying to process it. I think a lot of the times the, the shortcut is Christianity. 
when they're talking about, oh, these, these religious things here, the religion is bad, religion is manipulative. But if you look at it a different way and in a more realistic way, the, the religion that he's giving us to look at isn't Christianity at all. I mean, it's it's post 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 Christianity, yeah, if yeah. anything, and coming from who he is and where he was writing from, it's not really true believing saving Christianity at all. No, so it's it's his interpretation of where it would go in the future, right? But his interpretation does not accept the possibility that it might be true. Right. And so yeah. what's going to happen in the future, it is going to change and evolve. And, and, but he's even looking at, like, I, I believe he had a, a Buddhism background and a Catholic background. And I think he even mentions, I, I'm trying to remember in the book, if there is like a, a Zen, Zen Catholic or something like that, Zen, Zen Christian, yeah. Zen, Zen Christianity is, is one of the major religions. And something so you like kind that. of see that synthesis of, of his, his own background where he started out again. I think this is true that he was, he had a Catholic background or a Methodist background. I don't remember now. Um, but he did have some form of Christian background in his upbringing, but later on in life. And this is what I was saying is that, that, that psychedelic and that, um, consciousness expansion and i am not sure how much of the buddhism he was following was legitimate buddhism and how much of it was americanized popular yeah. buddhism of the time um and how much of it was influenced by drugs i i'm i'm not sure there but um you definitely see he he accepts that christianity is a thing in the modern day <laughs> it right. exists and so what is going to happen in the future with, with that? And that's the thing I, uh, I read a quote, um, from Isaac Asimov from the strangers and aliens website. Let's see if I can find it again, but I read this in our, uh, 10th anniversary episode. Yeah. Here's Isaac Asimov on religion and sci-fi. He says, it is impossible to write science fiction and really ignore religion. What if we find intelligent beings on other worlds? Do they have a religion? Is our God universal? And is he slash see she slash it their God as well? What do we do about it? What will they do about it? This point is almost never taken up, but since it would certainly arise if such beings were discovered in actual fact, science fiction loses its touch with reality in taking the easy way out and pretending religion doesn't exist. And Frank Herbert is definitely synthesizing all that through his worldview and 10,000 years in the future, what will religion look like? Isaac Asimov did that in some of his writings. Um, Arthur C. Clarke even messes around with it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the books I was talking about, um, the, the Expanse TV series, but the, the book series that's based on that, uh, or the, the, the TV series is based on, I should say. Uh, I'm not sure what the author's religious background is. But it is interesting to read these point of view characters that he has that are Christian. And one of them is a Christian priest or uh, pastor and, and reading the things that she's thinking about and saying about Christ and about the alien intelligence that might be out there. And then also talking about moral imperatives against violence and against killing and, and those things. Um, they ring true, uh, it, it, but it's in the same way that J. Michael Straczynski's 
Christian characters ring true as well. Like he's a staunch atheist, you know, he, mm-hmm. he will not accept the possibility of, of God, but his characters who have religious beliefs, he writes them in such a way that you believe that someone is creating this character to believe and be a true believer. You know, yeah. he's, he's not writing those characters usually to be a, a statement against religion. He's writing them to say, there are human people in my experience who follow a God and I want to write them in the truest way possible. And and that's something I try to do with, uh, with characters who don't believe in God when I do my writing. Right. I'm not sure how successful I am. We'll find out if I ever do publish my, <laughs> my novel, but when you publish your novel, when, when I publish my novel, I, I'm, I'm trying to decide to go to a publisher or not. If I don't, I'm thinking I'm going to try and, and put it out in January or, or at least start the process of, of getting it put out in January. If I do go a self-publishing route, but I need a cover. I tried to create a cover image that actually almost works, but I look at it and I see all the flaws because <laughs> I'm not a graphic designer. I, I play one on TV, but Anyway, we have gone on uh, quite a bit about this, and I think that this deserves conversation. And in my review, I say this is not the greatest science fiction movie ever, but it deserves to be included in the conversation about greatest science fiction movies ever. And it deserves to be thought of as you are thinking through what might be the greatest science fiction movie ever or the top five. And, And this might actually have a place in the top 10. And that's I'm using 10 because... I think it could be in the top five. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I think it's safe to say maybe this is a top 10 science fiction movie of all time. Maybe. Could be. Yeah. I mean. Definitely part of the conversation. Absolutely. Yep. So final words, Steve. My final word is. Um, the Dune. Part two. Coming up soon. <laughs> Not soon. Two years. <laughs> two years. Which means we're talking probably four years before we get to uh, Dune Part 3. But three movies over the course of, what, five or six years? A trilogy in, in six years? That's not bad. You do it. That's not bad Especially at all. Especially if they, if they film both of the other ones at the same, you know, close to the same time. They could do that. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember Lord of the Rings. We were spoiled. Yeah. We were spoiled. We were. Yep. And was... the Marvel movies right now, we're, we're getting, what, 14 in two years? I mean, Something come on. Like that. Come on. That's, that's ridiculous. That's a bit much. Plus all the Disney ones? Plus. Ugh. Hey, did you hear that we might be getting a Werewolf by Night Halloween special for Disney Plus? So I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming that means like an hour long, lower budget thing. Right. But Werewolf by Night. You like. Teen Wolf by Night or something. (laughs) All right. With all that said, Steve, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for uh, spending uh, your your morning with me and talking about Dune. It's uh, been a lot of fun. That's uh, yeah. It's always good. Always fun. Yeah. It's been ten years of fun. (laughs) Ten ten years of podcasting. I can't believe. Yeah. I can't believe podcasting is still around. Let alone that we've been doing it for ten years. So it's. It has, I mean, we should do an entire show just on podcasting because it has grown so much. We could. It's ridiculous. And the other thing behind the scenes right now, if you're listening, is that we're trying to figure out what do we do around episode 400. 
Um, but I think episode 401 might be a, a comic book relaunch comic book reboot, starting with episode one again. I don't know. I don't know. I, I wow. Uh, I don't know. We'll have Dr. Jace back again. No, probably not. Be- although, <laughs> although he has been wanting to come back on and talk about Picard. So interesting. Yeah. I'll have to watch it. So to everyone else, I also want to thank you for joining us and spending time with us as we talk about this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, no matter where you are, wherever the spice takes you, Godspeed. You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast hosted by Ben Avery, Evan David, Steve McDonald, and Dr. Jason Neal. Our music was composed and mixed by Tim Leffel. We'd love for you to join the conversation by going to our website at strangersandaliens.com where you'll find show notes, articles, reviews, and more. You can also email us directly at podcast at strangersandaliens.com. Or you can join our social media conversations by following us on Twitter where we are at strangeandalien or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangersandaliens. Or leave us a voicemail by calling the Strangers and Aliens hotline. That number is one 804 Once again, thanks for listening. Your chocolate, my peanut butter. Put them together. It tastes great.